Hello, everybody. I thought I'd record a quick video intro off my phone because I'm out of town. I'm in Denver. Uh, I'm here. I'm dog sitting for my assistant, Rihanna, who does all sorts of behind the scenes work for this show with social media and uh, sometimes lining up past guests and managing email, all sorts of uh, miscellaneous stuff that I am not good at at all. Here's her dog, by the way, Darwin. If you happen to be watching this on video, you're in for a treat. Vishlu, cuddly bud. Get uh, get into it. If you like cuddling with a dog, get a Vishlu. I wanted to do a little intro because uh, we kind of didn't um, uh, mention one the One Health Initiative that much in this episode, uh, but it is a One Health Initiative episode. The One Health Initiative is a uh, is just a large global um, uh, kind of interdisciplinary initiative trying to do a uh, just connecting a lot of human and veterinary health with environmental health and um, the the mixing of all of these insane number of fields that go into the emergence of really important matters like global warming and uh, zoonosis, the, the continuing um, proliferation of uh, the spread of disease in our modern life, and the many, many, many things that it is incomprehensible the number of, <laughs> of factors that we need to think about in determining this stuff. It's overwhelming, quite frankly. And this is a little way of, of giving a little window into that through one school, uh, the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Here's the gist. Here's how this happened. I was touring around with uh, my show Stand Up Science uh, before COVID. Had uh, you know, two hundred different scientists on popping in and out of a city. Uh, one, uh, my my show outside of Knoxville happened to have fantastic guest Nina Pfefferman, um, theoretical mathematician. Uh, doing, uh, working on um, kind of the epidemiology and evolutionary biology of pandemics. And, uh, you know, hit it off, had a nice time at the show, m moved on with my life, probably never would have, uh, <laughs> probably would have never even connected again. Uh, but then a global pandemic happened. And she was one of the first guests that I had on to figure out what the heck is going on with this stuff. And she knew about my enthusiasm in communicating science. And uh, I, I'm always asking past guests for future guest uh, referrals and suggestions and references and that sort of stuff. She was super helpful, so much so that she thought, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe connecting with a dopey comedian with a science podcast would uh, would be helpful in some way with this initiative. And I'm always looking for awesome guests. And so this is a this is just really 
a way that you can see. Uh, so, so I'm I'm having all of these different guests from uh, the University of Tennessee, and it's not about that. It's not about. It's just about raising awareness. That's it about the One Health Initiative. Um, no one's really selling you anything. You can check out the site if you want. It's just about getting information out there to the public by any means necessary. And because uh, it's important stuff and um, and there's a disconnect between uh, the sciences and the public. And so I've been looking to do more stuff uh, like this. Um, you've probably heard me express this in the past, but regular stand-up science that kind of initiated my early career just doesn't uh it's not as fulfilling as is a lot of the science communication stuff that i do it's great when i can combine both but i just love this i love this this podcast started as a hobby i love doing it so much i love hearing all sorts of different people that study things that i would have never thought to look into so many of the people that i have on including people uh with this one health initiative and and um, people at, uh, at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville that I've been trying to have on once a month or so. A lot of them have never even been on a podcast before. A lot of them don't even have a social media account. You, you wouldn't hear about their work any other way. And, uh, you know, I think, if you, I think if you told the average person about, you know, one very specific area of research, people wouldn't really fully understand the importance of why that research is valuable until you start seeing it all pieced together. And that's kind of what the One Health Initiative is, is trying to show. And so I've been working with them. Boy, what I, I sure hope that I get to make more connections um, like this in the future and get to do more uh, science communication and get better at it. I honestly don't really know what I'm doing. There's no like clear path of, of how to do this. And so I'm always looking for help in any way that I can. So it's just been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to connect with all these folks. And, uh, and, and so in case this is, you're new to the show and just tuning in, if you go back uh, a year or so, you can see I started having a bunch of guests on kind of talking about this One Health Initiative stuff. And we should be kind of building a story uh, together of the of the many, many interdisciplinary factors that lead to understanding um, the the things that uh, the way the world works, frankly, and a, a lot of some of the most important things that are often kind of hidden from uh, from our awareness. You don't hear a lot about them um, in the media otherwise and just stuff that the, the average person never gets a window into. So that's why I love doing the show. Uh, hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, if you want to support me, um, uh, this is an ad-free show other than when I go blabbing on about stuff like this. It's an ad-free show and it's ad-free because of your support on patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Hooray for science. 
Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have an exciting episode for you today. We're going to be talking about nutrition. Uh, there, it's it's a subject that I don't discuss enough on the show. Just had, assuming that I put these out in the order I've been recording them, I just had an episode with Herman Ponser from Duke talking about um, our uh, the evolution of our metabolism, and uh, I thought you'd like to hear a few other takes. It's still January. People are turning their lives around and becoming a brand new human being and fixing everything that's wrong with them. And by the time you're hearing this, you've failed. Many of your New Year's resolutions have been an epic failure. And so <laughs> it's now time to reassess again. And we're going to get a lot of great information for you. We're going to fill in a lot of my gaps that I have because it's just not a field that I know that much about. Coming from the Department of Nutrition at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Holly Rayner is joining me today. Holly, thank you so much. Well, thank you for the invitation. So you are the director of the HEAL Lab, mm -hmm. right? Can you talk a little yes. bit about that and, and sure. talk about your background? Sure. Um, so that's a healthy eating and activity laboratory. Um and what we do in the lab or the research that I focus on is really thinking about how can we enhance what we call lifestyle, multi-component lifestyle interventions, which are um, interventions that focus on healthy eating or, or different types of eating, physical activity, um, using behavior change approaches um, to assist with overall weight management. Um, and the topic of my research pulls together the disciplines that I've been trained in. So I have training um, in both nutrition. Um, so my bachelor's and master's are in nutrition, and I'm a registered dietitian. Um, and then my training in clinical psychology, uh, which predominantly focuses on um, what we call behavioral medicine. How do we help people change behaviors um, to engage uh, in healthy behaviors more regularly. Um, so I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist. So my overall uh, research agenda pulls those fields together and really, really focuses on how can we help people be healthier from an eating and activity perspective. Amazing. Uh, I And I love all of the interdisciplinary approaches. One of my, so I, I've had a lot of uh, guests I try to about once a month have a guest from the University of uh, Tennessee. And one of the advantages of doing that is people get to hear so many different takes from so many different departments and fields and seeing the interconnectedness between all of these uh, aspects of research into better understanding uh, this existence that we're all in. And uh, and in, in your particular case, especially uh, uh, th th this is something that, you know, I, I like doing episodes about insects or uh 
like the psychology of what happens when people lose their wallet or whatever. But this is nutrition is something that is, is a topic that people have to think about constantly um, every day. And it's also. So so through most of COVID, there's been a lot of why aren't people just getting healthy and why aren't they just eating right and this and that and that will fix everything. And in, in my from my perspective, it actually seems like it's almost just the opposite problem where I, I feel like my whole life I've been inundated with various wellness tips and fitness things and slim fast and this new weight machine and and every I, I just remember that from a very early age and it continues today. I, I have more of a problem teasing apart. Well, which of these things actually work? How do I, how am I not just a sucker for the new diet shop that popped up in town? The new, the new supplement thing, the, the wellness oil, uh, uh, or the wellness aisle and in the, uh, natural grocery thing and all these things that even when you have the right intentions how do you know <laughs> what to do it's so complicated it is i mean um i mean you're kind of talking about two things that make it complicated so one is the behavior change component like how can we you know how can each one of us um develop in a sense habits in such a way that are that are healthy and that can be maintained over long periods of time and um, and how can we be motivated to, you know, engage in choices that help us um, hit the values that we actually are interested in? So there's like there's that bucket, which is generally, you know, from the field of psychology. And then there's the which I always call it um, sort of the nutrition trivia aspect. Right. So like what what's important, you know, um, from a dietary perspective that can be helpful in terms of either preventing health, uh, sorry, preventing disease or treating disease and, um, and uh, understanding then amongst all the choices that we're making from a dietary perspective, what's going to help us um, put into place a dietary perspective that's going to help with, again, whatever you're trying to achieve, prevention or treatment or whatever. So those two areas are incredibly complex and eating behavior itself is just very complex. So, um, if we had all the answers, obviously I, I wouldn't have to do the research, uh, that I'm doing, but it's, it's, it's pretty challenging. There's so many individual differences as well. As you talk about the kind of, uh, hitting the values, um, uh, people's values, well, uh, people's values and, and people's identity uh, are huge in this. It's you can hear, I, I like doing some yoga. I, I've heard things about it being oversold and various things. Everyone has different takes, but I'll I'll go to one class and it will be some person talking about the anatomy of this muscle doing this and this is why it helps with balance and then I go to another class and someone's talking about chakras or whatever and I tend to I hear about chakras and I start gagging a little bit I I want to hear the sciencey sounding word salad that I don't actually understand and that's more convincing to me even though they're both doing the exact same movement <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's so it's so that's it, it's easy for me to make fun of one or, or gravitate to another, but it's it they all of these kind of uh, approaches are going to hit everybody a little bit differently. No, you're absolutely right, and like from a psychological, you know, viewpoint, when we when we're talking to people about values is. Um, for many people, part of the challenge of engaging in healthy behaviors is of um, competing values in different areas of their lives. So most people will, will say, you know, I really value being healthy. Like, I really value, you know, being able to um, have a better, you know, blood sugar control for my diabetes, for example, or, you know, I, I want to try and um, get off some of the medications that I'm on. My health is really, really important to me. I want to have the energy to play with my grandkids or et cetera. But on the other hand, engaging in healthy behaviors um, uh, may also, um, to help hit those values, may compete with other values the person has. So for example, maybe they've got a social network in which um, eating out is really important so that they um, are out at restaurants and, you know, having this relationship with other people in their lives. And that's important to spend time with, with those individuals, but it makes it harder then to make choices that fit this other value in their life. So um, from a psychological perspective, that's part of the challenge that many people have is that they've got these competing areas you know, one thing that we oftentimes talk to people about from a dietary perspective that can be healthy is like meal planning and, you know, planning out for grocery shopping. And then how are you going to prepare your meals, which is true. All those things generally are helpful for people in terms of meeting dietary goals that they may have. But those things also take time, right? So that may take time away from engaging in other things that somebody values um, or potentially um, they may have other people in their lives in which that type of framework doesn't fit well with their values. So, so, um, we oftentimes think of all those things as sort of like competing values that somebody's having to negotiate, which can make it very challenging to engage in healthy behaviors, even though that's something that somebody values. Mm. So it becomes yeah. less about, from our perspective, it becomes, it's not about many times people will say like, well, you know, you're just not adhering to, you know, what you need to be doing. It's, it's just these other competing things in their life. Have you ever heard the, um, the mouse study where they have, uh, they have a mouse on a wheel that's allowed to run whenever it wants to. And, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and then, and then they have another mouse uh, on another wheel attached to that wheel and it so it is then forced to run whenever the other mouse chooses to run and they measure stress and everything else and so they're they're both both these are doing the exact same activity but one is choosing, choosing. to run when when it wants to and the other is Having a very no similar choice. stress response, but getting that amygdala going, that fear response going, yeah. and and it's a, a negative stressor. They don't have control 
uh, they over the situation. They don't have predictability over it, even though it's the exact same movements. Yes. Yeah. Choice. Choice is incredibly important in terms of what we call, especially um, from a behavior perspective, like reinforcing value. So, yeah. So like if, if I have a choice, if I feel like I have a choice to engage in certain things, again, that feels more reinforcing to me, much more pleasurable, much more positive. The removal of choice um, does not feel so good. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so are there... I'm really curious at getting down to some of the, I actually think New Year's is an unfortunate time for people to be setting goals because you're still hunkered down for the winter for a while. Mm-hmm. I I think springtime would be the, the easiest time for people to use, a, you know, a bit of motivation and enthusiasm and energy and get yeah, sunlight. Yeah, when there's and, more light yeah, and more yeah. warmth outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think you'd be setting yourself up for a little more success in 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 the average individual. But going back to these individual differences and what resonates, I mean, if you go to a self help section, you ha- you see like the the two big ones over the last decade is just imagine everything's going to come your way, and as long as you send out positive thoughts, this will alter the quantum universe, and you just got to keep them positive. The universe loves receiving positive thoughts and will return the favor by uh, delivering uh, the things on your dream board or whatever, and then you just need to keep cynical things like learning physics and neurobiology out of it and then there's uh and then there's like the bootstrappers that are just the opposite like the world's not gonna give you anything you gotta fight through the tough mutter competition and you gotta do all this and then if you get enough obstacles you'll become a real estate agent and such and then i have my own biases where i i i like to just throw in the towel holly i'll tell you i i i gravitate toward futility uh uh, to to a, a really delusional extent, I'll, I'll I'll give up before I've even started in the day, and and so we we all have we all have such vast it, it, those 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 first two things that I make fun of again. It, if that resonates with a person that that will be absolutely life changing for that person that it suits their identity. And for me, I'm just like, I don't want to hear any of that. That will never motivate change in me. So are are there actual like fundamental simple things that that you see to have the most no one's saying there's a magic bullet things aren't going to work a hundred percent but you you have just really simple list of things that you could give to an entire population what would you do yeah 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 i i do feel like and and obviously there's there's a lot of evidence to support this we usually in the type of work that I do, we usually implement this when some, for somebody to think about their own household or their work environment, but it can also be thought about more broadly, like from a policy perspective. It, it truly is thinking about like our overall environment that, that we are encountering and sort of how much does it help or not help um, an individual in terms of healthier choices. And so... Um, if we were able to put into place, um, 
an environment in which, you know, healthy eating choices and physical activity choices were automatically prompt, you know, and somebody didn't have to think about it or plan or whatever, yeah. um, that, that would be super, super helpful. Now, our environment, obviously, unfortunately, is not like that at all um, and has moved away from that over over time. So that is one of the reasons why people who could, could you go ahead. could you dig into that just to, could you unpack that a little bit? Sure, sure. So um, I'll just talk about this like from a first from like an eating perspective. So one of the areas that I do research in is what's called variety. So variety of choices or um, eating different kinds of things actually promotes more eating. And the easiest way or to think about this is what happens to many people when they're at a buffet, for example, um, is that they usually will eat more. Not that they go into it hungrier, but they usually will eat more because there's more choices per se. There's more stimulation. Um, we think... Uh, the group of collaborators that I have, we think that this is a function of what's called habituation. So um, individuals uh, will continue to respond to a stimul stimulus um, as the stimulus is changing. As the stimulus is consistent, the response will diminish more rapidly. And so the easiest way to think about that from an eating perspective is if you're kind of eating consistently the same things, you won't um, probably eat as much. But if you're constantly having new things introduced in a meal, in a diet, consumption will you know, increase or it'll, it'll, it'll be engaged in for longer periods of time. So from that, if you think about just our food supply, for example, um, you know, uh, we know that the overall types of, of products that people are uh, can purchase and can consume now are so much more than they were, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Even just think about like what grocery stores looked like, right? You know, um, and especially the variety of our food supply hasn't increased in those foods that we consider to be the healthiest. So it's not like we have all of a sudden all these different kinds of varieties of fruits and vegetables we have all these different varieties of cookies and ice creams and potato chips and cereal. So, um, so that, so that change in that environment then means that that's going to encourage us automatically out of our consciousness, you know, to consume more. Yeah. Um, and so if I'm constantly in that environment exposed over and over and over again to all these wonderful choices, it's harder for me. I have to work harder in a sense. I have to work harder to manage my eating. Uh, yeah, and so by changing the environment, it can either help, you know, with, um, in a sense, reducing, making eating less or can actually promote consumption. Um, and so we can, we can look at this in lots of different places besides grocery stores. It can be like when you go out to a restaurant, you know, the menus, what the options are again, so much more than they, you know, than they used to be. 
Um, and I have to get an appetizer and I have to get a dessert because this is a night out. Right, 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 right. And so, so that's an environmental characteristic that has changed tremendously over time that we feel like is, you know, contributing in a sense or making it harder for people to engage in healthier choices. Uh, Another big change is portion sizes. So what a portion size looks like or what people think a portion size is, like what one serving is, has also tremendously changed over time. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we know, again, there's lots of data that show you put more food in front of a person, they just eat more. Mm -hmm. So if now my portion is, you know, double the size that it used to be, I will probably eat more just because, again, of that stimulus that's in front of me. Um, Mm -hmm. Or I have to work harder to leave food on my plate or not eat at all or that kind of thing. So those two things alone, we think are big, big drivers of what makes it harder for people to that, that is purely in the environment that has nothing to do with like what people know about nutrition um, their values, um, you know, anything like that, that, um, make it more challenging for people. I love that. It's, it's so when you kind of, when you talk about if it's always, I mean, listeners to this podcast should, uh, know we spend a lot of time talking about, um, the subconscious mind and various cues and primes that we aren't very privy to but uh this isn't this isn't common knowledge out there for a a lot of folks don't spend a lot of time thinking about why they think what they think and and what might be driving their behavior in ways that they aren't consciously aware of and it is we're so mismatched with the 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 environment that our brain and these preferences were shaped in are very different than than we we really aren't built for the world that we've built for ourselves. And it's it's funny to think that our hunter gatherer ancestors would, you know, it probably was not unusual to be desperate enough to take a chance at eating some berry that might be poisonous because you need to get that nutrition. And and now you have the this threat of going into a grocery store and you're paralyzed by choice and now there's all these all these incredibly delicious uh uh slow poison hey i think it's being i i don't i don't subscribe to the like oh ice cream is toxic and poison and you should stay never treat yourself to anything but um but man we, we are taking our <laughs> a brain that evolved 200,000 years ago and maybe changed uh, the last time 75,000 years ago or so and sticking that brain in a in a grocery store in some weird like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure situation that we're that we're all <laughs> that we're all in it's no, it, I mean y- we're really set up to fail in a lot of ways. We are, we are, and that's one of the things that that you know we talk to many of the individual families or people that we work with is, you know, people think that they should be able to be in an environment with a lot of these, you know, high what we call like high energy dense, highly palatable foods, and just say no. And the answer is, well, 
that's not how we're designed. We, we are designed to want those foods because they are energy dense, right? Because exactly like what you were saying, a long time ago for us to prefer those foods was really, really beneficial, really, really helpful to survive so that you could get more calories per gram that you were eating because you needed that. Um, we're just not in that environment now, but we still are, we still physiologically prefer those foods. So if you're going to surround yourself with those foods or have lots of access and expect that you're going to be able to not want it, that's just very unrealistic. Hmm. Let me throw some more complexity at you. I'm, I'm curious okay. when you go about thinking about habituation, are, are you kind of separating um, or, or how much are you separating and thinking about satiation? Is that a different topic? Like the, the, the feeling of, of being satiated and how obviously they're intertwined, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you feel is the difference between those and continuing down that path. I'm, I'm wondering how you, tease apart what is habituation what is satiation and what is learning um and and because we say when we say you habituate to something and talk about these hedonic treadmills that we're all it takes all the running we can do just to stay in the same place even even if we're hanging out in a hammock um but the if if it wasn't the case that the brain habituated, it wouldn't learn. We would all be, we would all be like, you know, it's very exciting when you see a kid take its first steps. But if you saw an adult walking around <laughs> like that with that same level of excitement while they're stumbling around, you'd like there must be some deficit here, or maybe they're impaired in some way. You need to habituate certain things as an aspect of living. So. How do you make sense of all that mess? Um, those are really good questions. Um, traditionally, they are considered separate in a sense that you're right. Habituation is considered to be more of a learning uh, sort of like just um, to describe any any learned response to a stimulus, whereas satiation, at least from an eating perspective, has generally been thought of as what causes an eating occasion to end. Now, from a nutrition viewpoint, generally people think of satiation as being caused by, in a sense, the physiological properties of the, the physiological response to the food that's being consumed. Mm -hmm. So we do know that there are some um, types of things that we eat that generally have more satiating qualities that will cause an eating occasion to end more rapidly than others. So for example, we consider solids to be more satiating than liquids. Um, we consider um, solids that generally have more protein in them to be more satiating than solids that are higher in fat, which is not is satiating, but increases satiety, which is what we consider the time period in between eating occasions. Now, what is interesting is there is um, something called the gut-brain axis, 
where we do think that the brain probably and the gut communicate in such a way where learning is happening. We can see this actually in conditioning. So we can see that our body does learn over time, like um, a flavor, a mouthfeel, um, a smell, and it will begin, it know, it then learns, okay, what what is coming in from a nutrition viewpoint? What do we anticipate is gonna hit the gut from that smell, taste, mouthfeel? And it will actually start to prepare, you know, in terms of our um, enzyme release, et cetera, for what's going to come through the system. So our, so there is some learning that's going on. And so that probably then gut-wise may then influence habituation also. So that our body over time is probably learning some um to uh, more rapidly habituate or not to differing aspects of things, depending on usually it is considered to be related to what we call like sort of the orosensory exposure. I don't know. Mm. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, yeah. We solved everything. We just we figured it all out. Life over, complete, solved, mysteries, no more. Um, I, I, yeah, I. What about is it? Is it? Uh, is is there truth to the idea that in in terms of your brain gut communication, it, what you just said was really fascinating about learning over time, and uh, we've talked about things like Sosbrenes syndrome uh, before. Of of you you have like the bad night with tequila or whatever, and you never eat it again, or you go out for pizza. At a we learn place that and... response rapidly. <laughs> yeah, Taste yeah. aversion. We learn rapidly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but so things that that's just kind of like a exaggeration of a more nuanced thing of, of kind of what you're saying. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious, um, if the, if, if the brain, if there's anything to the idea that the stomach takes a while to signal to the brain that it's full and it does, right? It does. And that's where this overall learning over time um, is thought to be helpful. So if the, if the brain begins to associate that orosensory experience is going to produce X, you know, whatever that X is, then the body will better understand how to respond. So, so then again, mm -hmm. that this is where variety is problematic, right? Because as you don't have consistency and as you're mixing it up, the, the body has a harder time learning, understanding that. Um, and so that also can be problematic. Another area in which it's problematic, this is not where I do a lot of research in, but um, there are concerns, I guess, maybe is the best way to describe it, um, from some researchers about, you know, we have a lot of modified foods in our food supply. So, you know, we change predominantly the macronutrient composition of the food to try to, you know, make it have less energy in it or maybe less fat or something like that. Um, but those foods are designed to mimic, at least oral sensory wise, the, the real food. 
So again, our body may get confused if someone is consistently switching in between the modified and the real version. It, the body can't learn like, okay, well, what's coming down the pike here? Is it the fat, is it the fat free version or is it the fat version? Because That's obviously interesting. that means different wow. things for how our body is going to digest, you know, the food. So, so, um, right. Cause you're still taking so, the same visual cue. I, right. I never, right, boy, right, wow. Right, I never right. really thought about like that before because I, I had, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in the small plates. I, I I've been, cause I, I want to put on weight. I'm in a fortunate position where I've been just naturally skinny my entire life, like my whole family is. And so I have to do the opposite of most things. So I get as big a plates as I, I can to fill up and I eat as fast as I I'm about the fastest eater you'll ever see, because if my stomach gets wind that there's eating happening, it's like, whoa, hey, so I have to. I have to trick as much food as I can down there before it gets wise. Um, but but that's I never thought about that visual component yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. idea of of <laughs> of of something that like, uh, you, you know, the, your visual system clearly not telling the difference between, say, uh, uh you know, fr fresh pressed juice or something like that. And, and some, some concentrate Kool-Aid type, um, beverage. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Again, if our, if, if, if we generally are making consistent choices, what, 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 whatever they are, our body goes like, Oh, I get it. This is, you know, this is what's going to happen. But if, if we don't make consistent choices, which, Again, our our sort of environment really encourages us, I mean, to make inconsistent choices. I mean, if you talk to people, you know, people are like, I can't I can't eat the same thing regularly for lunch or dinner. That is so boring when our bodies would probably actually be like, well, that's actually OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the body's okay with it. Not not as much your taste buds. Right. Yeah, yeah. G give your body a chance to learn something. That that right. is a really cool take. Oh, I love that. Um, huh. I be, because I had. Have you seen the research about kind of counting your gulps? You know, you, you give someone, mm -hmm. you, you, know, you know, those those counters that like a bouncer or whatever will have yep. for counting things. They'll they'll give people those while they while they sit and eat and they let people eat as much as they want. And and when people in, in the experimental condition, when the control condition, they eat whatever they want. The experimental they do as well, but they have a counter and they click the thing every gulp that they take. Uh, those people in the experimental end up eating less. I, I couldn't tell you how much. I don't know the name of the study off the top of my head, but something I've thought a lot about in the past. It's fascinating. Yeah. And and it's it's triggering this this subconscious mental feeling of of satiation in the same way that having a smaller plate and finishing it is still like, oh, I finished. Whether it's a large plate or a small plate, it's still a cue that you finished. Yeah. Or, or just increasing awareness, you know, when, if we can pull sort of eating, um, 
into awareness where it just isn't happening and people just are very unconscious of it, at least in the minimum, then they can make conscious decisions, right? I'm consciously deciding to engage in more or engage in less or to choose this or to choose that. So we also, we also try to put things into place, which we call it generally monitoring, like monitoring your eating, which traditionally has been more like, well, now app-based, but there are lots of devices. I have a colleague that they're working on, you know, something that's related to sensors on, you know, that would be around the face in which you would be aware of sort of like what's happening from a chewing, swallowing viewpoint. Wait, what, what is this? So what do you mean? Like you're seeing it in real, t- like you're seeing like some. Well, like if you, if you wear like a device, you know, like you can put like a device over like your ear and if it can sort of measure your, your movement of your jaw, right. It can potentially then be tracking in a sense, you know, if, if an algorithm can be developed appropriately, it can sort of track what's going on, what you're, what you're eating, what you're consuming. And potentially then it can be paired with an app and give you feedback. And so you can actually see, you know, what, what's happening in, in real time. So that's, a you know, from a technology viewpoint, that's sort of at least the field that I work in where sort of people are going to help us better understand, you know, what are, what are people eating? Cause traditionally for a long period of time, we've used self-report, which we know is incredibly biased. Yeah, I ate pretty good yesterday. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, very few people, you know, weigh and measure their food, even when they're in a program in which they're encouraged to. I mean, you know, it's very rare. So then people are like, I don't know, that was like a cup. And yeah, who knows I'm- if that's right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've I've just have, there's this um, guy Hedonic Health. Uh, he listens to every podcast I've ever put out, both this and a new one I started last year, and uh, does does personal training and nutrition stuff. And reached out to give me a, a free month of of things. Um, but uh, so I've been I've been um, I, I've been going to the gym consistently. Uh, which has been nice, actually strength training for the first time in my life. But the nutrition stuff, I still, there's like pages of things and it still feels just, I haven't started it because it's still overwhelming for me. And it's still like, I don't know, it's a fist's worth of the way in which we measure these things. I'm like, I... Then I got to keep track of it. And, you know, you, you need to be in the right place in life to be like, OK, I can do that now. Yes, I'm going to yeah, I'm going yeah. to start thinking about that. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, I think it's really one thing that fascinates me is is how much say how little satiation has to do with fullness. Of, of course, fullness is a a physic the physical fullness of your stomach is a factor indeed but it's it, it would surprise most people to find out how many other factors there are in the feeling of full uh or or be mindful of that of course we've all had the experience of being absolutely stuffed and then uh you know what i'll have some popcorn with the movie right afterwards or the dessert menu comes around and you're like hey, Actually, I might be able to squeeze in uh, creme brulee or three. Um, 
even yeah. though you, you even though a moment ago you were phys- there's no way I could pack another thing in there and yeah um, yeah no and yeah. you're right and the other the other of the opposite of that is you know hunger too I mean that's another um, feeling I think that's really challenging for for people I mean we as we're working with people in terms of helping them develop healthy lifestyles, having discussions about, you know, that hunger is like a normal, natural, you know, feeling. It should occur multiple times a day. Like, you know, before you have your lunch or before you have your dinner, you should actually feel hungry. Um, that it's not this horribly aversive, you know, so being able to like sit with it and sort of feel okay. I mean, there are a lot of people that are like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to feel that hunger. So, you know, trying to think about, I mean, oftentimes, obviously, from a dietary perspective, we are thinking, like, what can we put into place to help prevent hunger? Um, But at some point, you know, there has to be a good balance, you know, of these feelings. They're both normal, natural, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, When I was thinking of... So if, if the goal was to get people, if the goal for, this is for people's bodies, they eating more consistent meals, but psychologically that's, that's too boring and they're getting satiated quickly or something. What about, so I had a episode on, on uh, satiation that ran one of my favorite studies, which is they have people pick their favorite songs uh, a, a favorite song of theirs, and then they play. Um, uh, boy, I wish I could remember who my guest was. I'm the worst with names, Holly. I'm going to be in f- future episodes. I'm going to be butchering your work to some other guest and forgetting <laughs> your name, and it's a nightmare. Um, but uh, there's there the idea was was that you play the chorus or whatever the hook of their favorite song to them 20 30 40 times in a row or something and it's uh people in the study actually get mad for having been in the study they're like you ruined my favorite song i can't oh. listen to this anymore <laughs> and they get satiated with something that is their favorite song they can't get enough of this oh well i'll show you listen to it 40 times in a row you'll have enough of it but what's really yeah. interesting is is what they then studied after they created that condition they then studied ways in which you could get people's kind of appetite for that music going again. And what you do is if you had someone come back in, in the, in the control condition, they, they wouldn't do anything. They would just play that song again to them. And they'd be like, Oh, that song again, you evil bastards are cursing me with this. again." (laughs) But in the experimental condition, what they would do first is they would have people make a list of all the music that they had listened to over the last week. And that, that triggered a sense of, Oh, I've actually had a lot of musical variety in my life over the last week. And then they were able to reappreciate their song again. Very interesting. Isn't yeah. it? Uh, so yeah. I wonder if there's something that, that could be done with that in terms of if, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people are getting into these meal plan things and there's there's ones that are 
being easier and delivered to your door and you don't even need to think about it. It's pre-made this and that. Um, but, but people still might get kind of bored with eating the same thing over and over again. I wonder if there are ways to trick ourselves into basically, uh, being okay with building these consistent habits of eating. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about, at least from my perspective and the research that I do, that's sort of what we're trying to figure out is like, what is the degree of variety that is tall, you know, does not promote problematic consumption, but that um, is not so limited that it's tolerable to people that, that people feel okay with it. And there may be things that can be done, you know, which we, we do know from an eating perspective, there are lots of things that contribute to variety that have nothing to do with, um, physiological, like the, the energy or the macronutrients or anything that are provided from the, from the food. So, so things such as, um, changing the color or changing the shape that will, that will, that people will feel like that that's, you know, variety or how it's, how it looks like that it's actually arranged. So those are things that potentially could be done or potentially different types of flavorings that don't contribute to so different kinds of herbs or seasonings or those kinds of things. So that would provide variety without it being problematic. Um, so that would be one way to try to figure out how to, um, I guess, harness variety in such a way that it's not detrimental, but still, you know, still works for people. Um, we, so we, we need to get back to playing with our food. Essentially, we need to normalize <laughs> adults playing with their food again. I, I want to, it's been so long since I've made a mashed potato castle and I'm like, why haven't I made a mashed potato castle in my entire, since I was like five years old, I'm missing out. Maybe that's the solution. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or rather than even just having, um, things separate is to like figure out a way. Can you make the, can you make them all combined in a sort of like casserole or soup or dish or something like that? So again, it's kind of the same, but it, it's different. So we have the same, you know, we, we don't have as much data on it, but it's sort of the same issue for physical activity. Now we want to use variety for physical activity because obviously we're trying to actually increase that behavior. So there's, there is data that shows that the modality, so like walking, biking, running, so people that engage in more different kinds generally have more activity but we don't know if it's as fine tuned. So does it matter if you're doing your activity? Let's say it's walking, for example, if you're walking on a treadmill versus walking in the park, is that the same or is that variety, you know, in terms of what you're doing um, mm. versus walking and listening to music or, you know, so we don't know there's hasn't been quite as much um, research done in variety and physical activity to see if it is as fine as, um, for eating, we know for food, it could be the exact same food, but if you change the flavor or change the color, it, um, that's a variety aspect. Interesting. What, what about, what about exercise and, um, and the idea of, 
of surprising your muscles because right right now the the plan that i'm doing it's 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 pretty simple it's doing a lot of the same exercises and just adding weight each time and it's for the first time in my i've tried i've tried lifting weights and doing crossfit and other things before and it's just been like pulling teeth all the time in the past and this has just felt more like meditative and relaxing maybe i'm in a different stage of life whatever but is there anything to the idea of like you're supposed to change up your muscles. If you if you go to the gym, you got to like put your muscles through some haunted house of like, whoa, what the heck is going on? Why, why am I doing an overhead squat and then jumping with one leg and clucking like a chicken? With it? Is there anything to that idea of, of trying to surprise your muscles? I, I think exercise physiologists do think of sort of that interval training you know, cross training uh, is important, mostly in terms of recovery, right? So if you're constantly overusing the same muscles, you know, that doesn't, um, that doesn't give them the recovery that they potentially need. So at least when I've talked to exercise physiologists about variety, that's, they always think about variety from that perspective, you know, um, which is even, it could be, you know, walking or running at different speeds. So for them, they, they think of that as variety because of this, you know, potential difference that it's engaging in, which I mean, that makes sense to me, but I'm definitely not an exercise physiologist. Well, let's pretend you are. And let me throw you another thing. <laughs> at you. Real, real life, real life anecdote. The, the, uh, I'm genuinely a decision I've been contemplating lately. So I've been, I got heavy into pickleball and I've been, are you familiar? Not um, really. No, it, it's like, uh, it's, it's like, it's like tennis and ping pong combined. It's like a shorter court okay. than tennis. And most of it's played like right up at the net with a wiffle ball. And okay. so it's really good for, it's an old person sport usually because it's it's all you need is good reflexes. You don't need to. It's good for people with bad knees and stuff. So you can okay. there's there's like 75 year olds that are uh, incredible at it, you know, that have been playing tennis their whole lives, but they can no longer, you know, sprint around quite as much. So anyhow, um, I got into it just because I like uh, beating seniors at um, sports for my own validation. Uh but I got obsessed, right? So here's where this is going. So I've been playing five, six times a week and I've been, I've been thinking, I don't, I think that there's diminishing returns for my body. If I'm, if I'm doing that, I'm not, like you said, I'm not resting enough, blah, blah, blah. And is it more in my interest to, um, you know, do, do, pickleball three times a week and those other three days a week that I'm going to go and do a sport, do like rock climbing, or I've been thinking about swimming instead to kind of every other day be mixing it up a little bit more. Am I going to get, am I going to get more of a value if I'm going to spend two hours doing some, some sport each day, no matter what, am I going to get more of a value mixing up what those two hours are, I guess is the short way of i i asked some long-winded questions don't i my audience is <laughs> I know, used to it i know i'm like i have to like keep my, <laughs> I, I know. focus on you and be like okay um, <laughs> yeah. i i think um 
I mean, I, th- I do think that exercise physiologists do think that having some variety is, is a good thing from a physiological viewpoint, okay. from a behavior viewpoint. Um, here's, here's the interesting thing, which I have never seen like a head on study to, to examine this, but so as what we've talked about from a habituation viewpoint, one would say like, that's totally makes sense because you've got more variety in your activity. And so that's going to encourage you to, um, engage in more, uh, physical activity. But the other behavioral part is like, well, you know, we do know, we do know that physical activity does really well when it's a very habitual activity in a sense where, you know, you, you're doing the same thing kind of at the same time. So that you've got all these cues in a sense, right. That prompt you to just like, I'm just going to do it. I don't have to think about it. Um, whereas with variety, you've, you've got to sort of plan and think a little bit more. So people who really focus on physical activity as a habit, developing a habit might say, well, that's going to be problematic because it's going to be hard for you to develop a habit or Mm. more challenging. So I guess depending on which way you're looking at it, I would say, yes, it's a good thing. Or some people might say like, oh, maybe it's a challenging thing. Mm. How's that for a scientific response? I love it because it's basically like, (laughs) I don't know, a lot of ways of looking at it. (laughs) Which, which sounds very scientific to me. Uh, that, that 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 rings is true. Here here's something that I so you know you learn something new. It changes your lens. You have I consider myself an epiphany chaser. I'll lug through a lot of boring stuff that I'd rather not be learning about for the off chance that one day I'll be like, oh my gosh, that made me see the world in a whole new way. Um, I was a small plate evangelist for a bit. I think I still probably am, but it just, it seems to me that, that um, in terms of the difficulties of Again, putting our hunter-gatherer brain in our modern grocery store, everything that comes along with it, running on a treadmill with a hunter-gatherer brain, thats there's nothing more insane than running in the same place to go nowhere. Uh, like, that's to train your brain away from every reasonable intuition to stop you from doing that. It seems like a nightmare. Um, seems so challenging. Obviously, it comes with rewards, but to me, one of the simplest things you could possibly do is just throw out those dishes, get smaller plates, just get used to using smaller plates and see how that that works for you. It seems like cultures that use bigger and smaller plates, there's a difference in obesity. There's probably a lot more factors going on than that. But what do you think about small plates? I mean, people definitely um, hypothesize that smaller plates and cups and utensils should be helpful. Um, I think that the smaller utensils. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like use a smaller spoon, use a, you know, rather than like a big spoon, use a smaller spoon, even in terms of also serving yourself. Right. So let's say like if you're like a. Um, if you're eating a meal family style in which like the food is all on the table and then you're putting it on your plate that again, sort of like the serving spoon, all those kinds of things, people are like, that might have an effect. And it, the evidence is mixed. So we don't really have any sort of like good, I don't know, strategy recommendation or whatever to say, if you, if you use it this way, 
however you want to describe it, this will be effective. But certainly, yes, it is definitely hypothesized that those things can be helpful. Yeah. Huh. Well, so theoretically, we all just need to start playing with our food and having like little weird Alice in Wonderland tea parties where we're all drinking out of thimbles and such. Um, so... Uh, this is, I, I want to go to this island where we're trying to make these things take off. So, you know, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin originally. I, I've, I've traveled a lot through the South and Bible Belt and stuff where, where you currently reside. Huge portion sizes, you know, and, and I'm not saying it's necessarily the only factor in, in um, higher obesity rates, but man, my, my hometown. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a foodie. Um, I'll eat anything, but I, I do like finding and exploring fine dining and patting myself on the back for being cultured and this and that. And so my hometown, there is no good fancy restaurants for the longest time. And then there's this place in the cross Wisconsin that opened called the waterfront, probably the best place in town. And when it happened, I was like, this is amazing. This is so good. And then I went and looked at the reviews and everyone that was from out of town there on business loved it. Finally, the cross has a good restaurant. Anyone that was from town was like, I paid $9 and I still wasn't full and just lost their minds over it. Another example, there's this restaurant. It's still good. It's called Four Sisters in the Cross. I recommend it, but it used to be much better, in my opinion, when it started. Tapas Place. Super fun. I love tapas. Uh, you got the small plates, but I love variety, honestly. Um, but uh, And I like the sharing style. But I would. I remember I'd be visiting, and I my mom would be like, where do you want to eat? And I'd be like, well, we should all go to four sisters and she'd be like ah it's good but i don't know i'm just hungry you know like i want like a a real <laughs> meal i'm like oh you get more plates and i'm i'm trying to get through to my adorable midwestern mom who hasn't traveled much in her life and and you know is not used to this idea and I'm like yeah but you just get more plates and and then my my a uh, similar adorable naive sister comes over and it's like where are we going I'm like well I want to go to four sisters she's like mm-hmm, I'm hungry though like I want like maybe we can go there for an appetizer and it's just this idea of small plates is just it really I mean uh, I I think it would I think it would change uh, a country like America to start implementing more. But I think I think you would have a lot of people throwing fits trying to implement such a change. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're uh, you're I think you're right, especially with eating out. I think there's this expectation of now there's this expectation of large portion sizes and so when you don't get them, it is sort of like, well, well, you know, wait a minute. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it is, it's, it's just, you know, changed a lot as compared to, uh, I don't know, 40 years ago or something like that. So it's very, very different. Yeah. So I, I would say that my listeners, 
I don't know. I should look. I, I would say maybe the average age is uh, 35, something like that. So, yeah, I, I have a lot of listeners with uh, with young kids. And this is, you know, as we are fortunate to continue to progress and become more mindful of these things, something that all these things that my parents and no one I know's parents thought about when I was a kid, the things that we're discussing right now are now something that are like becoming a lot more common knowledge. What do you, what do you see as some of the difficulties with, um, with being a good parent in terms of providing, um, the right kind of, uh, nutrition for your children today and what modern opportunities um, might they have that say our parents didn't have when we were kids? Hmm. One of the challenges I think for many families um, actually is sounds not very positive, but is, is are actually parents themselves, right? So um, one of the big I guess, sort of predictors of um, how a child sort of thinks about um, the food choices that they make and that kind of thing are actually modeled from their parents. And so because we have so many adults, which would be the case for, um, again, sort of this um, change over the past like 40 years, because we have so many adults now that are um, challenged with engaging in healthy eating themselves um, for families and, and for, for kids, it becomes really challenging because there's not a model sort of in place that's sort of guiding that development. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for young kids, uh, we, we do believe that, you know, what you're exposed to, like the tastes and that kind of thing, um, are going to influence a bit, you know, your overall preferences over time, your food preferences over time. Now, there's just some natural developmental changes that happen in food preferences in individuals um, that you can see. But um, if if your choices are not really, as you're a child, if you're not having a lot of choices related to those healthier food choices becomes harder for preferences to develop to develop mm-hmm. for those foods, which then might make it challenging, you know, or we believe has made it more challenging for people as they then grow into young adulthood, et cetera. So that's, that's a challenge that families have is that parents themselves are, are challenged with engaging in healthy eating habits more so than they were 40 years ago. Um, so that was part of your question. Um, let's see what the other part was. What, what, what's a benefit now? Is that, mm-hmm. am I remembering correct, correctly? Yeah. Maybe, maybe just in terms of the, you know, what we've learned in terms of the information that is available now. And, and certainly, you know, something, something like whole foods or, you know, these natural grocer and, you know, co-ops and stuff like that weren't nearly as possible as um as popular when i was a kid um or Mm -hmm. or simply didn't exist and for all of the kind of pseudoscience that will also come along with some of those things and slapping organic and this and that 
on things that maybe aren't always. To me, it does look like progress in a lot of ways in terms of our ability to make healthier choices and being more informed about what we're eating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think even just the whole concept of, um, even though I, we don't know if it's had any influence on choices that people make, but just even the whole thought of like farm to table, right? Like that wasn't like a concept that was around. I mean, that's a fairly new concept, but it is, it is a fairly healthy concept, right? So thinking about, you know, how local um, produce is, is grown and how can you actually gain access to that and use that in a healthy way. So the focus is on like fresh and whole and real. And um, so, so one would think that that would be something that might be helpful to earth, the concept of farmer's markets, having more access to farmer's markets, those kinds of things. Now, the challenges, some people will say, is that, um, you know, to, to utilize that approach, there needs to be good culinary skills in the household. And, and do most of our households have good culinary skills? I'm not sure that that's the case. And then the other component related to that is just, which I would say is the biggest factor that everyone talks about as an impediment to engaging in any healthy behavior is just time. So that concept of yeah. if I've got to, you know, if I've got to spend time really, you know, accessing food and then preparing food, it's, it becomes a time issue that by far is the biggest, everybody you talk to says that time is a barrier for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. It could take a lot of time to cook a good meal. And what about what about the food pyramid that uh, that was around uh, in schools, uh, you know, 35 years ago or so that that I grew up seeing in first grade that I, I have no idea what it was because I didn't pay attention then and uh, <laughs> and still don't now. But has has that food pyramid? Does that thing still exist? Has it been revised? It's been revised. It's now called, um, at this point in time, it's called MyPlate. Um, the newest version of the dietary guidelines have been, uh, haven't been, I mean, MyPlate hasn't really been changed. Not, not that the newest guidelines that just recently came out are like vastly different. They're not, um, but it is called MyPlate. Is it tremendously different than like the original food guide pyramid? Um, I think what's really different when I think about, you know, what has changed over time, to be honest with you, <laughs> I think the biggest, um, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about like when I was an undergraduate, so I went through undergraduate, um, my undergraduate degree, like in the, in the mid to late eighties. So when I think about like what seems really different then as compared to now, when we think about healthy eating to prevent chronic um, disease is how we think about, honestly, carbohydrate and fat. So when I was an undergraduate, we thought that fat was like the worst thing ever. Like, you know, you should limit fat. This was like the real low fat push. All fat is bad. Um, try to get it out of the diet as much as possible. Um, and I would definitely say we're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, even just the thought of somebody consuming a diet that was 40% energy from fat is part of our recommendations now that it can, you know, sort of be that high. But this also this 
recognition of that there are different kinds of fat and some fats are actually very healthy and, and good for us. Now they're energy dense. So you need to not, you know, you need to be aware of like how much you're consuming of them. Um, and that carbohydrate, you know, most likely should be consumed in much more moderation than we thought in the eighties. So that by far is the biggest change, even though it doesn't necessarily look like that tremendously in the graphics. Hmm. And what about, because we are talking about, uh, you've made a lot of the point about trying to maybe build consistency as in that more than what the consistency is in is the consistency itself, maybe being a, a larger contributing factor to health than people realize. But say, uh, you know, people are listening, New Year's didn't work out, but I'm ready now. And I would think that if you want to start a consistent habit, why not integrate, you know, healthier choices into that consistency, if you can, there, can you talk about some of the differences of, because certainly, I'm thinking of this study that took the exact same food, calories wise and everything and in the control just gave it to people as is and in the experimental processed all of the food and put that exact same food just processed and gave it to people and the people in the processed condition um, ended up gaining a lot more uh, weight and so so can you speak to that some of the some of the just simple heuristics that we know of, okay, you're going to make a change and build this consistency. What should you build consistency with in a ideal, while still pragmatic <laughs> world? Yeah, I think building consistency in food choices. I think for many people, breakfast is the easiest place to start because people don't feel so such a need to engage with lots of different, like they feel pretty comfortable eating a, the same thing regularly for breakfast. So figuring out what is a healthier food choice for you that you can eat depending on if you're busy or not in the morning, because everybody's different and then try to engage in that um, pretty consistently. That is probably one of the easiest places to start to build in like a healthy choice and a consistent choice. And, and we are, um, which is a, a new area in nutrition, we call it chrononutrition. We, you know, there's more and more research that suggests the timing of how we eat is also very important because of our circadian rhythm with the mm. thought of potentially, which, you know, goes back to like what people used to say, you know, a long time ago that, that, breakfast may be really an important meal of the day, you know, that sort of eating more energy earlier in the day is much better than eating more energy later in the day. And unfortunately, most of us eat more energy later in the day now. Um, mm -hmm. But breakfast, getting started with a consistency and a healthy choice is probably, unless somebody's not a breakfast eater at all, then it's, then it's challenging to, to build that in. But for most people, that's a a fairly easy place to start. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, as you say that, what about, I do wonder about that backfiring toward the, the night because we're, it, it, for 
we get frustrated with ourselves for not being as disciplined or whatever as we like, or as long-term thinkers as we'd like. It's actually humans kind of superpower. If you, if you look at any other primate, they don't have near the self-control that, that we have. If you, if you give your dog a, a treat, it's not mindfully savoring <laughs> every, every little and counting its chews and like, oh, well, let's get this plate sized down. And, and, but I, I was, I was talking last week, one of my, one of my favorite tidbits about grocery stores are kind of filtering people through all those healthy choices first and the fruits and the vegetables and look how healthy I am. I'm turning my whole life around. And then you get to the sh- uh, sugar uh, cereal aisle and now you deserve some frosted flakes because you, you threw some apples in the cart and uh, you know, the, the, for, for as good as I, I had someone describe it, Gosh, why am I forgetting everyone's name as as our self-control is like a cheetah, like incredibly impress a cheetah has incredibly impressive speed. Nothing else in the world can run like it. But as soon as it's done, it collapses and it, it rests for a long time. And our self-control can be like that as well. I wonder if we start the day right. It says that in some individuals, is that just going to set them up to fall apart that much more later on because they've used their self-control because they can tell themselves stories of they did everything else right through the day? I mean, potentially, you're right. Um, it is just, again, sort of this concept of can you build in consist- where can you build in consistency in a habit versus... Uh, sort of, I guess, more coping strategies, um, to address issues. So, but evening eating, especially eating after dinner for most people that like, that's like, that's the most challenging time period. And what is that a consequence of? Is that a consequence of, you know, like what you're saying, Oh, I've done much better earlier in the day. So therefore it's okay. Is it a consequence of an individual you know, has just had to use so much of their psychological resources and other parts of their day that they have like just no, or it's just very challenging. And when they walk into a house and they know that there's cookies and chips there, that they, it's just so much harder to, you know, engage in processes to stop. Is it a habit? Because this is, um, they're used to winding down their day with some, you know, ice cream, for example, um, is it all the above? I mean, the evening is definitely, um, definitely a very, very hard time for lots of people. Mm-hmm. Lots. I, I really love this idea of it's something that I need to integrate more into my life. This idea of environmental engineering and kind of the uh, constructing an environment, assuming just assume that your future self is not going to be thinking through every decision you make in some thoughtful, sophisticated way. And much of us are on autopilot all of uh, most of the time. So those little windows of planning and self-control that we have, we can potentially use them to set things up for our future selves. Maybe taking that uh, that jar of mini candy bars and putting them out of sight in, uh, in a, a, a 
in uh, you know closed off in a cupboard in the back so you need to get the ladder out to get up there and so you can still have it when you want but you're not what it's not the first thing that you walk by when you open the door or walk into the kitchen um those sorts of things are, are you kind of a believer in in that sort Absolutely. of putting your jogging Absolutely. shoes by the door so you see them all the yeah, time i mean uh I do think that there's only so much capacity, you know, that an individual has. And by setting up the environment to assist, you know, with those choices, it reduces cognitive load. And um, it just, uh, um, I mean, I, I think about myself, you know, I love licorice and tortilla chips, love them. If Together? they were in my house, <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, but, but if they were in my house all the time, I, I mean, yeah. I, you know, to every day sort of have to work to not engage in, you know, over consuming that, that sounds exhausting to me. <laughs> um, well, this brings us to maybe the most important question of the show. What kind of licorice are you into? Do you like the... <laughs> You, you like the little, I'm into like the snaps. I, li- I like the snap things that are like the little roll. You into oh. that? You get down no, with that? I really, I, I really like Australian red licorice. It's kind of sticky a little bit. It's a okay. little bit, I, I, I'm not sure how it's made, but it's yummy. We can, we can agree that Twizzlers are garbage and for people that <laughs> yes. lack any yes. kind of sophistication. Um, (laughs) I, I like the, I like the little, I like the candy coated little, like the pill shaped, uh, things. Those are, those are good too. Those are good too. You get down with absinthe ever you into it? Um, no, not, no, Mm -mm, not so much. All right. All right. Just ask, asking the tough hitting questions here. Um, I wanted to uh, go back to childhood for a moment before I have mm-hmm. uh, I have I have a couple, uh, I think, banger questions to close this out. I, I think it's going to be. Uh, yeah, this, this has been a fun episode. Childhood development. This is the part of the show. I love to do this. I like to. The reason why I ask such long-winded questions is because when I walk a guest through the way that I think about things, that gives them the opportunity to correct the many ways in which I'm wrong, <laughs> which I which I always am. And it's fun for me. It's fun for the audience. So let's do it. Childhood development. It's I I was taken by hearing a bit of of research um, about. I think this is in Mary Roach's book, Gulp. Um, I think it's called Gulp. Anyway, she's a fun science writer um, about childhood development and the various stages at at which your your brain is forming and what is appropriate to eat is something that you learn early on in life. And there's windows of time where, you know, the parent needs to watch and make sure the baby isn't trying to stick everything in their mouth. Is this pen going to taste good or whatever else? And then there's a period of time where after the age of, I want to say, there there's a period of time between three and five where you're kind of constructing your more rigid 
um, ideas of what food is appropriate and any food that you aren't exposed to, say, before the age of five years old is going to take a little more for you to uh, have a taste for early, early in life. Like say you're raised in a country that that eats bugs or something like that, and you're exposed to that early in life. And then you go somewhere else that that um, that doesn't or vice versa. You're going you're going to be you know what I'm trying to say? Is that a is that a thing where there's kind of windows of child I've development? I've never heard that before. Okay, next question then. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Let's just no no worries. Let's just assume that it's true. Um, okay. I, it's, I think that it might be, especially now that I know you, you don't know if I'm wrong or not. And I'm like, yeah, I think it's, I actually think it's true. Um, all right. Back to your research. This is what I want to know. Okay. It's two, it's two questions. They're the opposite. What is something in your field, some kind of nutritional behavioral uh scientific like kind of consensus or dogma of the day that you could see like aspects of your work that you believe now that you could see being falsified in the future having a likelihood of of making a discovery that falsifies it in the future and then the opposite what are the things in your field that you would say that there is no concrete evidence for believing right now but you are hopeful you you would not be surprised if in the future it was shown to be the case that you know this hypothesis is true once we have more technology or research or whatever else okay so the first one what do we believe now that i anticipate we might find false in the future right or just or question. even just maybe walk back some of the claims or something like that yeah um well i think there's already a walking back on this of some sort so in the in the broad area that i work in um we do really feel like that it, in comparison to other nutrients um, that energy is the most important component of, from a dietary perspective about weight. So it's not, for example, it's not necessarily about your ratio of protein to carbohydrate or sodium or like it's, it's basically energy. Um, and so for quite an extended period of time, there's been discussion about like, so then it doesn't matter what you eat from a weight management perspective, if your energy intake is this, is if it puts you in a negative energy balance state. Um, so if you are burning more than you're consuming, whatever it is that you're consuming, it doesn't matter. Um, it's all equivalent. And there's just enough thoughts and research coming out and like you actually, which I think that you were alluding to potentially Kevin Hall's work that we do think that it may not be quite that easy. I, I don't know. So, um, this is simple. my, my guest Herman Ponser, uh, from Duke university last week wrote, wrote a, a book about 
human metabolism, which, which th this was one of the big points that he's making in his book, actually, that it's, it's not just as bad news for me because I'd rather just exercise more than watch what I eat. But uh, much of the thrust of his book is it's it's not you can't neglect nutrition. Oh, you can't. You, you, you definitely can't. I mean, you know, physical activity um, has a lot of health benefits that it does not look like that nutrition can, but it's certainly from a weight management perspective, so much of it is driven by your eating, but mm -hmm. it may not be a calorie is a calorie is a calorie that there may be some other components that we need to pay attention to. And, and again, that, that concept of processed food versus not, I mean, there's not a lot of literature on that, but that certainly was an interesting outcome. This other thought of chrononutrition you can eat the same thing, but we are actually seeing different physiological response depending on the time of day that you're eating. So again, that suggests that it's not just straightforward like we think that it is. So I do anticipate um, some of these like finer things will come out over time um, that we just don't anticipate right now. Mm. Um, so there's and there's definitely a lot of suggestion of that already. So that's not going to be like in the field. People won't be like, oh, my gosh, where'd that come from? And before we get to part two of my question. Hit me with intermittent fasting, yay or nay? I think it depends on how you're so. So we classify that under, in a sense, a broad umbrella of time restricted feeding, which can be seen in lots of different ways. So intermittent fasting is one of those. I think it's something that. We need more research on, but, you know, um, does it look like that it does something better than other things? Maybe not so much. Um, are there some concerns that for some individuals it may not be ideal? Probably. But is it, <clears throat> is it um, incredibly, is it going to have the negative consequences that some people think? It doesn't look like either. But there are components of time-restricted feeding, which also includes like the length of the interval of eating that's occurring in the day, as well as, again, sort of how energy is dispersed during the day. Um, there definitely looks like that there's this, especially the time interval, looks like that it's really important, which goes back again to this evening eating aspect so if you cut that out and you push eating earlier in the day what what does that look like but i'm, I'm not i'm not a i'm not going to say for intermittent fasting i'm not going to say like oh that's a horrific thing but i'm also not gonna i'm also not going to say it's the best thing ever hmm well it's it's at least good to know that it's it's not some horrific thing because i i, I think that i think that even if it as someone that's never tried it and i i know some people that claim they've felt benefits from it as there's individual differences, say say it wasn't physiologically actually doing anything, it was neutral in that regard, still strikes me as a heck of a placebo effect if you're kind of suffering <laughs> through not eating and, and you know giving yourself a sense of control and predictability over things while you know, actually feeling like you put some cost, you made some sacrifice and really feeling that. I I can see that in increasing, um, you know, placebo effects and other aspects too, if nothing else. No, absolutely, and I I will say in the field of nutrition, um, there's there's a very very large push about 
you know, what we call precision nutrition, that we're not going to have one, one dietary recommendation that fits all. And so the, that means that for us as researchers, we need to identify moderators of, of um, the interventions. And the moderators can be, you know, obviously physiological, genetic, behavioral, et cetera. And we've got to figure out then who, you know, which, which types of um, goals work best for who. And, and some of those components are going to be about like, for some people, what just feels easier to do over time. Mm. Now, the last question, what, what do you, what would you say you're excited about that maybe just can't be explored right now? really thoroughly for whatever reason, but you, you think, you think 10 years from now, the science is going to show, Hey, this thing that we actually have no evidence for right now was, was in fact promising and, uh, worked out. Where would you place some bets? Oh gosh. You know, I think the thing for me as a researcher and, and part of this is also just my own, you know, professional journey in terms of how I, you know, um, think about and approach research. I definitely was trained very much as like an individual focused researcher. Um, but we now just have this concept that there's, um, you know, to really address health issues, we need to think about things much more broadly. Um, and so I think being able to look at our health questions, um, in more, um, I don't know, complete ways where we can address, um, you know, um, understand things like disparities, which take so much more into account than are just individually, what, what do you do? Um, and so, I mean, I'll just describe one area that I work in. It's a small area right now, which is like um, food uh, and, and nutrition insecurity. So that's a very complex problem that involves lots of different disciplines, but it has an impact on dietary intake and it has an impact on health. And so how do, how do we address that, you know, from a research perspective? So getting researchers to better be able to come together from different disciplines to address these complex problems, um, I'm hoping that we can do a better job 10 years from now. Hmm. And what what about um, uh, you kind of mentioned looking at things from an individual perspective? It seems like a tricky thing to a trickier thing to test. But what about this idea of of a kind of social wellness that I, I think is more promising? This this um, the, this idea that we are. Our brains are, we are not just an individual. We are part of a social network. We, we are influenced by our friends, our family, the internet, people around us, our mind, our, our consciousness is kind of intertwined with that. And the, the kind of using that in terms of wellness and uh, in terms of say, like having an accountability buddy, uh, sometimes publicly committing to things, taking part in various classes, where, or, or the tough mutter competition or whatever, where you, you get to go or you run the marathon or whatever else with a whole bunch of, of people that that's something that I, I think is really tricky to test, but I think shows a lot of promise and intuitively makes sense in terms of getting back to kind of 
our ancestral roots of what, what our brain was, how our brain was uh, built to assess reality. No, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like, how do we understand the social networks that people have and how that's influencing what they do. So, and which is sort of what we've been talking about from an eating perspective, the social norm in our, in our country is not from an eating perspective is not a healthy perspective. And so if you're assisting individuals in trying to pursue this healthy approach for prevention or again for treatment, they're in a sense going against the social norm. And so what does that mean for them? Or what do we need to put into place to, you know, make, uh, address that social norm? Mm. Well, Holly, you are a fantastic guest. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. I'm long-winded anyway, but I blabbed even more than usual just because I, I like thinking through this subject matter. It's something that I need to be more mindful of and I don't know near enough about. So thank you so much for uh, helping share your research with everyone. And, and I, I hope people get a lot of inspiration from this. Well, thank you again for the invitation. It was lots of fun. Yeah, thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week.